Great to see you guys. My name's Pete. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I know that was a lot of announcements this morning, but um, I hope you can catch the vision that we are really committed as a church to growing uh, as disciples of Jesus that are being holistically repaired in all these relationships that uh, make us human. And, and so I'm especially excited about the Hold Fast thing that's launching. And Devin and Amy and their whole team um, have been doing really wonderful work in preparation for this for over a year now. And the heart and the hope behind it is simply to come alongside one another, uh, especially in those areas of our life where we need help the most. The places where we're struggling with pain, with grief, with loss, uh, with addiction, with mental health, with sexuality, whatever it is, we want to be a church that's there for each other and are able to gently and wisely uh, come together and seek uh, healing and wholeness in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I would really encourage you, I know that there's many of us that are hurting and struggling in different ways, and I would really encourage you to get in touch with the Hold Fast folks and uh, see if there might be a good connection for you. Um, it's exciting stuff. So... Uh, we are continuing on in our series through the Apostles' Creed, uh, which is an ancient baptismal creed that Christians for thousands of years now of all de different denominations and traditions uh, have come together and basically are able to affirm with one voice that this is uh, the central set of doctrines uh, that we hold to as Christ followers, but even more than that, this is our primary pledges of allegiance. This is our expression of committed trust in the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who created the universe, who came in into it to redeem it and who will one day come back to make all things new. And so we're walking through this ancient creed line by line asking uh, what are the questions that raises for us today? What are the significant uh, aspects of these ancient truths that would somehow say something to us today in the way that we seek to love God and love God's world? And so this morning... We come to the, second, the beginning of the second stanza. If you remember, the creed is organized in three stanzas based on the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And uh, today we talk about, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This morning, I get to talk about Jesus. And in addition to being the most famous, influential, and beloved historical figure who's ever walked the planet, he's also the kindest person I've ever met. He's also been my best friend for as long as I can remember. And I say that without any irony or shame at all. He is the person who has loved me and been so faithful to me and so patient and gracious to me. And I literally, I can't imagine my life without him. He's the absolute epitome of love. And he has been there for me um, from the time I was a really small child. He drew, him, he drew me to himself and has given me a love for him that's uh, unmatched by any other love in the world. He was there for me in high school when my dreams of being a rock star were crushed. <laughs> he was there for me in my college age years when I didn't even know if I wanted to still believe in him. 
He was there for me as a young man and as a young minister who didn't know what I was doing, but was somehow uh, just trying to be part of what Jesus was doing in the world. He was there. And he's been there for me in this season as a man who's uh, learning to try to love myself and believe the things that Jesus has always said are true about me. As I work through some of my wounds, some of my pain, and long to become the man and the husband and the father and the friend that I dreamed to be. He has been there every step along the way. And I can't imagine my life without him. So kind, so forgiving, so patient, so faithful. Even when I'd go days or even weeks, maybe even months, without acknowledging his presence in my life. He was always there, arms open. And I, I just, I love him so much. And I'm so thankful that so many of you know that same Jesus that can't imagine our lives without him. Sufjan, Sufjan Stevens has a lyric where he says, I think of him as my brother, even though that sounds dumb. <laughs> And I, I know exactly what he means. There's this story in the Bible where Jesus uh, has an encounter with a woman. And a woman that we can gather has sort of a sketchy past. And is afraid uh, to be known uh, for who she really is. And as they're talking, Jesus reveals himself and his love for her. And speaks affirmation and acceptance over her life. And we're told that she runs back into the town after meeting Jesus, and she says, I met a man who told me everything I did, and I want you to meet him too. And I so get what that feels like. Can you imagine somebody who knows everything about you, everything you've ever done, and instead of that person feeling like an enemy or somebody you need to be on your guard against, that's the same person that you want to introduce everyone you know to. So that's the Jesus that we're talking about today. And if you don't know him, man, I would love, I would love to invite you, as we've sung this morning, to come to him, to say yes to him, to receive him. And as we're confessing today, to believe in him, not just that he exists, but to place your hope and your trust in the kindest person I've ever met. Because at the center of this creed isn't a doctrine or just some theological ideas or inspirational words. At the center of this creed is a man, a person. And the earliest Christian creeds, even before the Apostles' Creed and the others, was this simple word, kairos Jesus. Two words that are translated, Jesus is Lord. This is the earliest confession of faith that Christians would make when they came to this point where they understood that no one else can satisfy the needs of my heart and give hope for humanity and hope for the world like Jesus I will not trust or follow or place my confidence or pledge my allegiance to anyone above him. Jesus 
is Lord. And so our faith, as those who claim to believe in Jesus, has to do with this idea of a personal attachment to him, a relationship or a friendship, that we would come to see him as king, as Lord, as God, as savior, as teacher, even as brother, although that sounds dumb. And so this line of the creed that we come to this morning, Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, this line focuses on Jesus' identity, who the scriptures reveal him to be. And out of, and out of that, how he came into the world. In the future weeks, the next three or four weeks, we'll get to Jesus' work in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, where he, where he is today at the right hand of the Father. But for this morning, we'll look at this one line related to the identity of this Jesus in whom we trust. So who is this Jesus who we believe in? First, we're told that he's God's only son, our Lord. And so the writers of the Bible go out of their way to present a picture of the God who created the heavens and the earth existing before the beginning of time as a relationship between a father and a son with a spirit mediating that love back and forth. And so a father can't be a father without a child. A son can't be a son without a father. They define themselves in relational terms. And so what Christians have understood now for many, many years is that when Jesus showed up in human history, uh, it was God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, mysteriously and miraculously breaking into the human race, becoming one of us. And so there's other faiths and worldviews and religions that have maybe a central figure that is born a human and then is elevated to a place of God. In fact, that's in, in some ways what most religions teach is how humans can become gods. That's not the gospel story. That's the story of Bruce Almighty, right? That's not the story of the Bible. It's not about a human who becomes God. It's about God who becomes a human. An incredible humility, this incredible scandal that for so many people it's hard to even, it sounds insulting or offensive to say that God could take on flesh and blood. But of course, this is what we celebrate during the Christmas season and look forward to in a few months. So the first thing we're told that we confess in this creed about Jesus is that he is God's only son. That as as the member of the Godhead has existed in this loving, familial relationship from all eternity past. And then we confess that Jesus, who's God's only son, has become Lord. That as he entered into human history as a man, he is now Lord. Jesus is Lord. And specifically as Christians, we would confess that he is our Lord. Now, the truth is, we talk about Lord, the lordship of Christ as those that largely, I don't know all of us, but largely have come through the evangelical tradition. And when we talk about Jesus as Lord, we kind of mean that he's our boss, 
or that he's our moral compass or that he is our spiritual mentor or that he is our savior who's forgiven us. And all those are great. But what we often miss is that for the earliest Christians to confess Jesus is Lord was actually a social and political statement. This is why it was such a big deal. The Roman Empire was not that concerned with people's spiritual allegiance. It was a pluralistic society, and people could worship whatever god they wanted and go to whatever temple they wanted and identify with whatever faith tradition they wanted. That's not what Rome was threatened by. But when the early Christians confessed Jesus as Lord, what they were saying in the same breath is that Caesar is not. That our ultimate authority, not just kind of our spiritual inclination, but our ultimate authority in the way that we organize our shared life, our ethics, our systems and our structures as a people are not going to be dictated by the powers of this world, but we are going to pledge our allegiance first and foremost to God's own son, Jesus. To say Jesus is Lord is a statement of loyalty. It's a statement of committed trust. It's a pledge of allegiance. Jesus is Lord Caesar is not. Rome is not. The emperor is not. Jesus has all authority, and he has my complete and total allegiance and loyalty. Now, this might be hard for us to believe, but there was a day when some people confused faithfulness to Christianity with faithfulness to a certain nation or political party. (laughs) What a mess we live in right now. And elections coming up in about a month, this whole Supreme Court circus, um, all the division, the polarization. Um, This is the exact kind of scenario in which confessing Jesus as Lord is going to be the most radical thing we can say. That we would confess that our first allegiance and our primary loyalty is to Christ and his kingdom. It's not to any president, not to any political party, not to an ideal like globalism or nationalism or conservatism or liberalism. Our first allegiance is not to Wall Street or to Hollywood or to the economy or to the market or to the military or to a flag or to even a particular country. Sex is not Lord, power is not Lord, fear is not Lord, pleasure is not Lord, you are not Lord, I am not Lord, Jesus is is Lord. Can you imagine a community of people that were actually living deeply into this confession and resisting the hijacking of our faith by any political platform or nationalistic agenda, but said our ethics, our morals, our politics, 
our values, our way of sharing life together in public and in private is ultimately only going to be dictated by the lordship of Christ. Those kinds of people don't fit nicely into any boxes. We have to navigate with discernment and wisdom how that would affect the way that we vote and the way that we do public life and work and all that kind of stuff. But this was a scandalous thing for the early Christians to declare that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And for us, just as scandalous, just as powerful, and just as potent to actually see the kingdom of God break in in a way that we long for. And I know this is a little bit touchy stuff to hit on, um, but I'm not afraid because I'm deeply convinced that the church should be the one place in all of creation where the lordship of Jesus is unopposed. And so if, if you're offended if I say the president is not Lord, <laughs> Jesus is Lord. This is the one place where we should be able to say that. And I don't care if you like him or don't like him, agree with him, voted for him or not. Christ is Lord. It, I had a, I don't know if I should say this. <laughs> uh, Kip, maybe pause the recording for a second. I, <laughs> Um, there was a gathering I was at on Good Friday last year, which is, of course, the day that followers of Jesus have set aside for centuries to remember his sacrificial death for humanity. And the gathering was uh, bend Christian leaders uh, or all over Central Oregon, pastors and business leaders and other people that united together for a prayer breakfast um, on Good Friday morning. And it was a cool thing to come together in this room with hundreds of people from all different churches in Bend. And you know that's my heart for unity in the body of Christ and different denominations and traditions within the faith. And that we've come together on the day where God willingly laid down his life as an act of love for the world. And as we're sitting there, the very first thing that happens the MC gets up and says, please stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. And if we were at like some law enforcement or military or government or public school kind of scenario, that's great. I have no problem with pledging my allegiance to the American flag. We've got one back there. Um, and that's where it stays on Sundays. Because our first allegiance is to the lordship of Christ, to his kingdom, his rule, and to his reign. Now, I love our country. I'm patriotic. I, I can do all that stuff. But it was so disorienting and confusing and frustrating for me when Christians, the called out ones, the recipients of this great gospel of grace, gathered together on the day where we honor the, the sacrificial death of Christ. And in the thing that we think unites us, and the thing that we think of pledging our allegiance to first and foremost, is not Christ, but a flag. A flag that I love, a flag that I respect. But does that does that bug anybody else? 
All right, you can turn it back on, Kip. <laughs> um, the church has to be the one place in the world where the lordship of Christ is unopposed. And what that does is, yes, it creates a radical kind of person and a radical kind of community if we were all to live into this confession, but it also creates the kind of community the world needs most. A community that's not going to fall into the divides. A community that's able to worship side by side with somebody richer or poorer than them, blacker or whiter than them, more conservative or more liberal than them. Those aren't the things that define us. We are defined by the kingdom of God and Christ the King. I'm convinced that this radical claim would make us the most inclusive kind of people in the world. People that can work for peace, people that can work for justice, people that walk in humility, knowing that it's not me and my people that are Lord, but it is Jesus. And so, to confess with the saints of old and with followers of Jesus around the world today that he is our Lord is a radical statement. And it was a threat to Rome you know, will be threat to the powers that be today as well. As we move on, we get into this space about the conception and the birth of Jesus. How does this promised Messiah, this Christ, show up in the world? And he shows up in, in a totally unexpected way. And uh, for many... This uh, story about the virgin birth is maybe one of the more troubling or confusing lines in the creed because everything else seems like something I can get behind and something I can really get excited about and something that's good news for the world. And then we get this story about this pregnant virgin and we're like, hey, even if that's true, I don't know why it matters. Um, it'd be easier just to clip that part out of the story. We're not going to get into all the different theories of why Christ had to be born uh, of a virgin, but it is clearly the historic Christian teaching that followers of Jesus have passed down from uh, the earliest days of the faith. And what we need to know is that it's not an isolated uh, storyline in the scriptures. But for Mary to supernaturally conceive kind of connects the story of Jesus to this long story of Israel told throughout the scriptures. That there's a long history in the Bible of God bringing life out of unlikely wombs. Places where you would never expect new life to grow. Deserts. And God says, that's where I'm going to plant the seeds of redemption. And so if you think of some of the stories in the Old Testament of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Hannah, there's multiple times where this story of redemption, this family of Israel that God had chosen to be his blessed and blessing people in the world, that story is only continued because God brings life out of an unlikely womb. And so the virgin birth connects the story of Jesus to the story of Israel. 
It connects King Jesus, Messiah Jesus, to this people, this promised people who've been waiting for centuries for God to bring about hope for humanity. And what happens then is that as Christians begin to wrestle with the dual nature of Jesus, on one hand, we would affirm that he is fully God, and on the other hand, we would, we would affirm that he is fully human. He's not half God and half human. He's not God dressed up like a human. But in his nature, the person of Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. And so for his father the first person of the Trinity, to be his father. And for Mary, this human girl, to be his mother, we get the beginnings of how we can start to reconcile the reality of the dual natures of Christ. Totally God, totally human. Now, why is that so important? There have been a lot of different theories and ideas why he needed to be born of a virgin, why his full divinity or full deity and full humanity mattered. But I want to anchor the conversation in the passage that Amy read for us this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this passage, along with uh, Colossians chapter 1, has been one of the passages that God has used to radically reorient our vision and mission as a church over the last year. It's one of the passages that speaks clearly and robustly about the gospel of Jesus' kingdom being all about reconciliation. Reconciliation is when two things that belong together are brought back together. When a relationship has been severed, that it's holistically repaired and made new and even better than ever. What's the opposite of reconciliation? Separation. You know what I think the most compelling metaphor for separation is in our world today? It's divorce. When two things that are meant to be together, that God has brought together, are pulled apart. And it may seem insensitive insensitive or judgmental for me to bring that up, but for those of you who have gone through it, I think you would agree. We live in an age of divorce, not just marriages, but there are divorced relationships across humanity, across community, across civilizations, across society. There's divorce that happens within ourselves where we're trying deeply to become whole and healthy and mature. And ultimately, in the Bible, there's a picture that God and humanity were divorced. When humanity rejected God as king and decided instead we want to be our own Lord and our own king. And the whole rest of the story of the Bible from Genesis 3 on is about God trying to bring reconciliation. God rolling out this plan through Israel culminating in this Messiah King Jesus who is the one that can reconcile the divorce between God and man. Well, how about the one who's both God and man? 
Let me read this passage again in light of that paradigm. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Three of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying, what, do, what, what is needed to bring a holistic repair of a severed relationship between heaven and earth, between God and humanity? Well, what's needed is a mediator, a peacemaker, somebody who can stand in the gap between these two parties who are at odds with one another. And Jesus Christ, as 1 Timothy would say, is the one mediator between God and mankind. The only one who's able to reconcile this divorced relationship. Jesus unites the human nature with the divine nature. He divides man, unites mankind with God. He unites heaven and earth so that through him and in him, humanity might for all time be with God and enjoy him forever. And so we take incredible comfort in knowing that in Jesus, we have a God who knows exactly what it's like to be human. That he was tempted in every way that we are. He suffers in all the ways that we do. He knows what it is to go through the trial, the loneliness, the pain, the fear, the betrayal, the loss. We have a high priest, a mediator in Jesus who's able to sympathize with us. And even in ways that are crazy. Because on what we profess is that on that cross, as Jesus became sin, in verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He knows what it feels like to live a life torn apart by sin by our own sin and by the sins of others done towards us. Jesus knows the guilt and shame that you feel over the broken and messy and secret parts of your life. He knows. He who knew no sin became sin. He knows what it feels like to be a workaholic. He knows what it feels like to be a porn addict. He knows what it feels like to be angry at your kids. He never did any of those things in his own life, but he absorbed all of our guilt, all of our sin, and all of our shame. And this is where it takes me back to the beginning of going, yes, he's Lord, he's Savior, he's fully God, he's fully man, and he's also my best friend. He's also the kindest person I've ever met. He's been so good to me, so good to so many of us. And I don't know what our lives would be like without him. And so in this story of reconciliation of heaven and earth, God and humanity being wed back together, it's one of the greatest stories of redemption you could ever tell. 
And the way Paul talks about it is that in order for that to happen, Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. That the Son of God became human so that humans could become daughters and sons of God. And Paul sets that up as the gospel. This is the gospel that we profess. That Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. Now his father has become our father. His life has become our life. His identity has become our our identity. His home has become our home. And it came at an incredible cost, an incredible sacrifice. And Paul says, this is the gospel, reconciliation. But this is not just the message that we've received. It's also the mission we've been given. All throughout this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, that he reconciles us to himself and then gives us the ministry of reconciliation. He doesn't count our sins against us, and he says, I want you to go into the world the same way. This is, again, why a community that is pledging their allegiance first and foremost to Christ and his kingdom is the kind of people that the world needs most. People that are on a mission to see peace, see justice, to see restoration of broken relationships, to see divided communities brought back together, to see hurting and needy and oppressed and lonely people fulfilled and made whole. We are the recipients of this mission, and we are also called to be participants in it. And it would require us, in the same way that it required Christ, to lay down our lives, to reject comfort, to reject familiarity, to reject safety, and to go into the world seeking to become like those who need to be saved. Several years ago, well, two, about two or three years ago, for those of you that were at Antioch, Pastor Ken led us on a journey down the, uh, the path of racial reconciliation. And those were some difficult uh, months or a year for us as a church. Hard conversations being confronted with ideas like white privilege and things like that. And uh, in fact, we think maybe 20% of Antioch left the church during that time. And there's always ways we could do better when it comes to trying to lead those conversations and engage in difficult issues that take us a while to understand But what I want to say is that at the heart of that journey, what we were trying to do was to follow Jesus in learning how to see through the eyes of others. What is the black experience? For those of you that look like me, that actually requires an incarnational conviction to enter and become like others as much as we possibly can so that we can love and restore and bless and make peace. And so to be called into 
learning what it feels like, what the story, what the history, what the experience has been. It is hard work, and it does drain us, and it's not the kind of thing a lot of us want to talk about at church. But when we seek to see through the eyes of others, walk in the shoes of others, put ourselves in the place of others, we're following Jesus. We're following Jesus. And it's not just with the issue of race, it's with all these different discussions. We have this immigration conversation coming up in a couple weeks, and that's really the invitation too. It's not primarily about a piece of legislation or how you should vote. It's like, what would it look like to see the world through the eyes of our migrant brothers and sisters? Because at the center of Jesus' teachings is love your neighbor as yourself. Imagine being in someone else's shoes, living someone else's experience, having someone else's skin. And what would love look like in that situation? As we come to the table this morning, the invitation is to come and receive the life of Christ again. To come and receive his grace. And in a very real way, the table in pretty much every society in human, human history has represented a place of fellowship and reconciliation. To share a meal, to share a table with someone else is a sign of friendship and acceptance and safety. This is a table of reconciliation. Where first and foremost, we obey this command to be reconciled to God. Jesus is inviting you to the table to come, to confess your sin, to pour out to your heart to him, <clears throat> to bring your whole self, even your sketchy past, and let the kindest person I've ever met welcome you into his life and welcome you into his mission. Will you stand and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we truly love you because you've loved us first and you've loved us for so long and you've loved us so well in such surprising ways. You've been so faithful and so good to us. And we are so grateful that you have come into our world, that you have become one of us. You've become like us. You've taken our sin, our shame, and you know what it's like. You know what we're going through today. But we thank you that you are also God, that you are also Lord, that you are the hope for humanity you are the one and the only one who has promised to make all things new. So Lord, we want to, by faith, by the power of your spirit that's present with us today, we want to live deep into that invitation. Lord, do your best work in us. Heal and restore us to you and to ourselves and to one another. We want to be part of you and part of what you're doing in the world.
thank you so much for your kindness, for your grace, for your presence and power here with us and forever. We trust you. We say yes to you. In Jesus' name.